Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. As usual, this is a Tuesday episode, so with me is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how's it going? Good morning, Bradley. We're here from the Lower East Side at uh, PNT Knitwear, as we're supposed to say. every uh, the top fuck, of it. I always forget to say that. I know, but we're, we're, now we're saying it, <laughs> and now we have it. Uh, and also, thank you. I, I, I asked in the last podcast people to please rate and review us, and a few of you did. So, oh, did we get some reviews? A couple, yeah. Oh, and nice. uh, if, if, if a few of you more could, we'd really appreciate it. So, yeah. anyway, wow, we got all the business done this time. Whoa. Yeah, exactly. Well now done, we can Bradley. just end the podcast with the last question. Um, so we have we have. Um, it's not hot breaking news since it's actually been in the media. Um, but Bradley uh, has has uh, has done a deal for his SPAC, and we're going to talk about that at the top of the at the podcast. We might stay with that for as long as Bradley has things to say about it. Um, but Bradley, tell us what the deal is. Why don't you why don't you just tell us the news, and then we'll back it up from there. Sure. So um, my SPAC, the Ivory Gaming Acquisition Corporation, which is a publicly traded company on the Nasdaq, uh, had reached has reached a merger agreement with PlayUp, which is an Australian based. Online gaming company. Uh, the deal is valued at three hundred and fifty million dollars. Um, PlayUp will post the SPAC, which I can explain, be listed on the Nasdaq. Um, I will serve as chairman of the board. Uh, Daniel Simic, who is the founder and CEO of PlayUp, will remain global CEO. And Christian Good, my partner, Ivory Gaming, will be the U.S. CEO. And what is so? Tell us what PlayUp is. It's a it's a it's a it's an app, right? It's like it's just yeah. A- so look, in, in a lot of ways, think DraftKings, FanDuel, whatever it is. But but here's why I did this deal. So I, I raised this back in October of 2020, and I had literally two years to do it, and I beat the wire by about a week, right? So I, I took it <laughs> as close as you Good could job, Bradley. to the very end. And, and here's the reason why. I had in my mind something very specific that I wanted to build and try to achieve, and I kept holding out for a company and a deal that I felt like could realistically do it. So, talk, tell us about that. Vision. So, my view has been um, the app that is able to say to customers from one app and one digital wallet, you can do any kind of gaming you want: regular sports, esports, roulette, craps, slots, table games, sweepstakes, lottery, whatever it is, um, anywhere in the world where it's legal. That's who wins, right? Right now, it's totally fragmented. You have all these sports betting apps that are just in a race to the bottom. You have other, you know, casino type apps. You have prediction market apps. And it seems to me that I, I don't think customers should have to try to distinguish between each thing and figure out where to go. It's it's unnecessarily fragmented. Um, and so what I wanted was a, a company that had the technology to build something like this, a company that saw it the same way that I did, and a company with a global footprint. Um, PlayUp already is operational in three continents, uh, in Australia, New Zealand, in India, and in the U.S. so far, in New Jersey and Colorado. Um, Daniel has sort of the same vision that I do for all of this. They offer multiple types of games already, regular sports, slots, horse racing. Uh, that's just three. There's probably about seven or eight more to go at least. Um, but it felt like if anyone had the technology, the presence, and the mentality. So not just someone saying to me, yeah, yeah, I agree, but someone who actually has already been doing it. Um, it was these guys, and I really liked Daniel personally, and we were able to reach a deal pretty quickly. So it's it's available to American consumers, you said, in New Jersey and where? Colorado. Okay, and, what's, and how will that rollout happen? So um, it's already available in those two states. We've got market access in, I think, six or seven more states. Um, coming up in the next two years, you just have to go to each state and make a deal, basically. Like pretty much, either with you have to get a license from the state or with someone who already has a license. Depending, mm-hmm. it, it 
scheming regulation is incredibly idiosyncratic, so it really varies from state to state, and I would put the audience to sleep if I tried to yeah, explain it. Yeah, let's not talk about it. But, um, yeah, it requires a specific process in each state, but um, PlayUp had already gone through that in a bunch of states before we even got involved. And, of course, one of the things that we bring to the table is regulation. So I would argue the hardest part of the gaming industry it's not the actual technology, it's not the marketing, it's licensing, permitting, and regulation. If you can legalize the kinds of games you wanna offer consumers and then have a license to actually play those and offer those, you can do really well. Um, the thing that my team will be best at, and we've been doing this for years successfully, is legalizing types of gaming and winning those licenses for play up all over the US, all over the world. Now, what about you personally? I mean, that's your team, that's obviously the expertise that Tusk brings to it. But what do you what do you see as your particular role as the? Yeah, I mean, I see a few things. So one is the overall direction and strategy of the company itself, right? right. So there's the specific things. If if you look at, for example, just as a corollary, when Tusk Ventures uh, leads around a financing for a new startup, we usually play two roles. One is we'll sit on the board and do the kind of general business help and advice that board members do. So scaling, uh, hiring, you know, culture, all of that kind of stuff. That typically tends to be my partners, Jordan and Brad, more than me. I am on a couple of boards, but clearly that's more their skill set. The other thing we do, which is very much me, is platform, where we effectively are the government relations and public relations arm of that company. Um, and the reason why we've done pretty well so far in venture and the reason why we kind of win most deals we want to win is because we're the only ones that can offer this, right? And so um, we will definitely, it, this in a way involves kind of both, but this time it's me, right? So, you know, my team will do all of the comms and we did a really nice job, you know, announcing the deal and getting good press for it. Um, we'll do all the regulatory work. We'll start by doing it from, you know, existing Tusk resources and eventually migrate them in-house to play up itself. Um, but then it's really working with Daniel and Christian to, to build this business. And, you know, whether it's new types of product lines, new markets we could expand into, partnerships, um, all of that stuff. And I think that's going to be really interesting. And so um, there's all of that. And then finally, you know, uh, while I've been the chair of Ivory Gaming, because it's a SPAC, it's effectively been a, a vessel, not a functioning corporation for the last two years, now I will be the chairman of the board of a publicly traded company on the NASDAQ. That comes with real responsibilities um, from board meetings to fiduciary duties and everything else, and I will fulfill them. Well, tell us about your background with Christian, because this kind of builds on your relationship with him and some, yeah. some so, stuff so you've done in the past. So I've got a pretty long history in the regulation of gaming. So started out when I was in Illinois and I was deputy governor oversaw the state lottery and the state gaming board, which oversaw all of the casinos. Um, we then became the first state to have the idea of privatizing the state lottery. I liked the idea so much that after Illinois, I went to Wall Street, to Lehman Brothers specifically, um, to create the first group on Wall Street to privatize state lotteries. Um, it was going reasonably well, but of course, when Lehman imploded into the global economy down with it, that was the end of that. Um, that idea hasn't come back, though? You know, it has a little bit. Um, we actually ran some campaigns for Camelot, which was the operator of the UK lottery, to manage U.S. state lotteries like Illinois, Pennsylvania, New Jersey. Um, and so it came back in that form, but more as a management deal as opposed to an overall macro 50-year lease or something like that. But I, I think in part just because no one's really been driving it and, you know, I might decide to, to get back involved in that again. Um, 
Then uh, when I started Touch Strategies, one of our very first clients was a Malaysian gaming company called Genting, and they own casinos in Asia, um, and they wanted to compete to build the first casino in New York City out at Aqueduct Racetrack. It was an RFP process. They hired me to run the campaign. We won. Um, that's where I met Christian. He was um, working on the team and then eventually became the president of, of Genting Americas, ran the casino. We became really good friends. Um, and then out of that, Christian ended up leaving Genting. Uh, we created Ivory Gaming as a way for us to kind of work on innovative gaming projects. First one was the work for FanDuel. So the very first investment that Tusk Ventures made was in FanDuel. Uh, and we did that at the time when they had received cease and desist letters from a couple of dozen state attorney generals in the span of 48 hours. And then we had to get in there and fight those off and run campaigns all over the country to legalize daily fantasy sports betting. Um, we did. We succeeded. FanDuel eventually went public. Shares became worth uh, quite a bit of money for us, so that was a clear victory. And then coming off the heels of that, as the SPAC market heated up, the question was, could we do something innovative in this market as well? Um, had this vision for, for what a global platform could look like. And we went out, raised the money through a SPAC. I can explain how that works. Um, and now here we are. So let's talk specifically about PlayUp, and then I want to go back to SPACs for a second. But so PlayUp was, uh, you know, it, it has the advantage that you're talking about, an all-in-one like platform for all kinds of gaming, wherever it is, e-gaming, regular sports, horse racing, everything, yeah. lotteries. But it's still, as you also mentioned, a really crowded field. So what's your vision for how uh, PlayUp sort of breaks out? Is there a... Is there yeah, a how do we differentiate is the question, yeah. right? So to me, it's a few things. One is... I'm not going to compete that hard in sports betting, right? Like, obviously, we need to be able to offer it to our customers. We're certainly going to, we have it, going to have it. Um, and there may be markets like India where it's less competitive and we can do a little better. Um, but in the U.S., I'm not looking to compete with FanDuel and DraftKings and MGM and Caesars because I'm never going to have anywhere near the marketing budget that they do, or at least not for a long time. So one is going to be, we're just going to have a lot more that you can do. Maybe it's bingo, maybe it's sweepstakes, maybe it's lottery, maybe it's slots, maybe it's roulette, maybe it's horse racing, but no one is comprehensive right now. So I think that if I can give customers one place where anything they want to do and one digital wallet, we'll retain those customers because we have an actual value proposition. The reason why the sports betting companies, and we did great on FanDuel, but I'm at the moment not particularly uh, bullish on the sports betting market specifically, is there's no differentiation, right? They all offer the same bets on the same sporting contests, and the only way they can get you to use their platform instead of someone else's is by effectively paying you to do so by giving you economic incentives. So it's a race to the bottom. It's very hard to differentiate. There are some platforms that have tried to differentiate. I've, I've looked at them as investments. Um, but overall, um, it's really not a great business. And I think if you want to be able to have customers who stay on the site and continue to use you, you've got to offer them more than just free play. You've got to be able to say, whatever you feel like doing, here it is, really simple. One app, you want to use crypto, fine. You want to use fiat currency, fine. We're going to make this easy and we're going to make this fun. Is there, uh, so what's the, is there a sort of marketing plan that goes along with that, just getting that message clear in the yeah, marketplace? Yeah, I, mean, I think the first thing we have to be able to do is, is keep expanding both the offerings that we have, so we're working on that right now, and the jurisdictions that we can offer it in. We think there's a lot of jurisdictions around the world um, that haven't really been explored yet that we think have a real 
lot of possibility. So it's uh, it's those two things, and then telling that story publicly. And look, I have always believed as a VC that the best way to lower the CAC, CAC is customer acquisition costs, is through earned media. So typically speaking, the strategy for every startup is they buy lots of ads on Facebook and other digital platforms. Maybe they buy TV ads or subway ads or whatever it is, um, and they pay to acquire customers. Yes, that's part of the equation. But if you actually have the ability, the knowledge, the skill set, the work ethic to generate news and do things that are truly innovative, and I've got a few that I'm working on right now, as you might imagine, mm-hmm. um, then I think people hear about you without you having to pay for that. And then you acquire those customers. And as a result, uh, the customer acquisition cost goes down, the long-term value of the customer goes up, and that's how you make money. Um, will there be cornhole betting? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I hope so. The other thing I, I did want to talk about is just sort of more broadly SPACs. What, what so I, so let me, that, let me okay. ask a specific question yeah. about that. So so SPACs were this really sort of hot thing during the pandemic. Uh, everybody was announcing one. Um, a lot of them have had to close up, haven't sort of made it uh, through their, their timetable. Um, what... First of all, I, I'm I'm curious how uh, what did you guys do differently that you got this you know into the real world finally? I yeah, mean, got, so got a deal. It, it happened to be a week where like Chamath Palpathia, who is kind of known as the king of SPACs, and someone by the way who, who I happen to, to to like quite a bit personally, um, but announced that two of his SPACs had to just fold because they were unable to complete a deal in the required time frame. Bill Ackman, legendary investor, had a four billion dollar SPAC that he had to shut down this summer. Same thing, couldn't find a deal. Those are two of the really well-known uh, actors, but there's lots and lots of others as well. And the reason why is the notion of what a SPAC could and should be got perverted, right? So a SPAC, which stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company, is a way for a publicly traded company to acquire another company, bring them public, and operate them. That makes sense when there's a true marriage of skill sets where one plus one, this is a cliche, but equals three, right? So if you're just offering them a a legal vehicle by which to go public and you have nothing else other than the fact that you can go on CNBC and talk about them once in a while, um, there's no real purpose for it, right? So in our case, the reason why I think we're able to raise our SPAC, $300 million, pretty easily and quickly, and why we're able to deploy it is we are able to bring very specific skills that the gaming industry needs and gaming companies need, especially around regulation, especially around media, especially around licensing and legalization. Um, and that combined with a good tech platform that's already kind of acquiring customers really is a good marriage. So when there's true strategic value brought by the acquirer to the company they're acquiring, a SPAC makes sense. When it is purely a financial deal for the sake of it, it doesn't. So that's number one. Number two, valuation. Um, you know, everyone always wants to make as much money as they can on everything, and so the prices of everything get inflated. We've seen this in the VC market a ton where companies are going public with these crazy valuations, $40 billion, $80 billion, and then the public markets are cutting them down by 50, 60, 70% almost immediately, and rightfully so most of the time. Um, our deal is $350 million. It sounds like a big number, but in the world of SPACs, it's actually a pretty small number. Mm-hmm. Um, but we felt like, you know, uh, I got a question from a reporter saying, well, I thought you wanted something at least $750 million. And I said, yeah, but I got a better deal. Like, I'm not going to apologize for doing get, getting <laughs> a company at a better price than I expected. And, and the third is alignment. So one of the reasons the SPACs have gotten so much criticism is 
the economic uh, benefits are really heavily weighed towards the sponsors of the SPACs, the Ackmans, the, the Chamas, the, the Mies of the world, because effectively you get lots of shares of the company that you're able to sell pretty quickly, regardless of how this company actually does. And as a result, the interest of the sponsors is just get a deal done at any cost, um, but that's not necessarily in any way beneficial to the shareholders. We forfeited all of our sponsor warrants, meaning I am 100% aligned with the shareholders. I can only make money if they make money and if I make them money. And if was, I, that a, was that a decision you made going in, or is that something you decided midway, or how did that... When did that come I, th- into play? I think that as we were kind of going through the process and watching the SPAC market fall apart while we were going through it, it, it became apparent to us that this was one of the things that made the market receive certain SPACs really poorly. Right. And my view was, I see. I'm not doing a deal if I don't, A, want to be involved in this company long term, and B, think I can build something really impressive and, and different. Uh, that's the only reason I try to do things in general. So therefore, if I'm doing the deal, it's because I believe in my ability to execute on it, which means I should be totally willing to align myself with the shareholders and take risk. And if I am not, well, don't believe that, I shouldn't do the deal in the first place. And so we're totally aligned. So I think in our case, a reasonable valuation, a true alignment of economic incentives, a true alignment of skill sets, that's when a SPAC should happen. You know, the media two years ago kind of had the narrative of, oh, SPACs are the greatest thing ever and everyone should do one. Now the narrative is SPACs are the worst thing ever and no one should ever do one. <laughs> and it's it's neither one, right? It, they are useful vehicles in some ways to take companies public when the right set of circumstances match up like they do in our case. I'm going to ask you one more question about this and then we're going to do one of our signature hard pivots. But um, you've been in and around the gambling business industry for, for, for a while now, yeah. um, 20 years almost. Um, what do you like about it? Why has it got this sort of allure for you? I think a few reasons. One is it, it's exciting, right? I mean, there's, there's you a... Knew, you don't really gamble much I don't yourself. gamble at all. <laughs> um, at all. Both of my grandfathers were gambling addicts. Um, and oh, I think we've talked about yeah, this. Yeah, so I, I don't gamble at all. Um, but were they, they were horse race. Horse uh, one was track. One, actually, it's interesting. One was was horse racing and casinos. The other one actually really was the stock market. But doing it with these giant margin calls so wildly that to call it anything other than a gambling addiction, you know, would right. be false, right? <laughs> right. Uh, and and they both paid the price financially very heavily. Um, and so that's always kind of warned me generally off of off of gambling. But at the same time, and this is my view of vice industries generally speaking, and. Catherine Dockery, who's been on this podcast a few times, spoke in my class uh, last week, and she runs Vice Ventures. Oh, we got to have her back. Yeah. yeah. And, and and one of the things that you know we were talking about is that she and I both agree that people are going to do what they want to do, right? Whether it's alcohol, drugs, sex, gambling, trying to prevent human nature doesn't work. And every kind of governmental system that had attempted to do that throughout history has failed. So if we believe that people are going to gamble one way or another, we can regulate it, we can tax it, we can control it in a way that actually makes some sort of sense, or we can just turn a blind eye, blind eye to it and then just let it fester with all of its problems and just like prohibition and just like everything else. And so I have always believed that vice industries ought to be legal because I think people have the agency to make their own decisions. One of the things I hate the most about 
uh, people in government politics, especially people on the left, tend to be, you know, this view of because they went to Yale and because they work at a think tank or whatever it is, they know better than everyone else. You don't know better than anybody else, right? Everyone has the right to make their own decisions about their own lives, and everyone has complete agency to do so, and you don't have the right to tell anybody else what to do with it. Um, same reason why I'm fully pro-choice. I don't believe that the government has a right to tell women what to do with their bodies. So, um, so I have always felt that um, people should have this agency. They do have this agency, and at the same time, you should construct the industry in a way um, that makes it sort of as productive as possible. That creates a really interesting regulatory challenge. So now you're combining an industry that's exciting with a regulatory challenge, which I know bores everyone else, but excites me, um, and, and some real opportunity to do interesting things. And that's why I've always been um, attracted to it. And also, you know, t t to me, for example, the only full-time job I've ever had solely in gaming was when I was working on privatizing state lotteries was I thought we came up with a way in Illinois to deliver tens of billions of dollars in new funding for things like schools and education, you know, schools or healthcare or whatever it is, while getting the government out of a business, the lottery business, the gambling business, that it does really poorly. So to me, it was a win-win. Um, government is good at certain things, but running a consumer products gambling business is not one of them. And so that's why I really love that idea. So I, I think to me, when there's a combination of a fun, exciting industry where you can make money and at the same time um, achieve some public policy good, you know, that's when I tend to get excited about stuff. Okay, time for the hard pivot. Okay. Um, do you want to talk about uh, Putin here or Putin at the end? Do you... um, we'll do it here really fast. Okay, so the news, uh, widely known, of course, uh, is Putin has started to make some um, rather disconcerting references to using tactical nuclear weapons um, in Ukraine. Um, that obviously has scared the shit out of everybody. Um, yeah. the, um, the United States has... I guess drawn a hard line. That was the story I read in the New York Times, but it didn't feel like that hard a yeah. line to me. Um, what What's your view of, of where we are? And and I, I mean, we've we've talked about your take out Putin philosophy. Um, obviously, I, I, that's, would, I actually have a, kind of my own hard pivot on this one. Which you have is, your own hard pivot, okay? Yeah, which is um, look. Is it saber-rattling? Probably. Um, there hasn't been a tactical nuclear strike since, what, World War II? So uh, I don't think I don't that think that one was considered tactical, was it? But that whatever. Was, whatever. But the point is, there hasn't been a deliberate... You know, there have been accidents at nuclear power plants, but but no actual acts of war with a nuclear warhead. Um, and I, I think that's probably because, you know, at the end of the day, no rational actor wants to die, and the ultimate conclusion of a global nuclear war is that everyone dies. However... Putin does not seem to be a rational actor, um, and it seems to me that if he is pushed enough and humiliated enough at a certain point, um, you have to worry that he legitimately will use it. Now, is he going to try to take out the whole Western world? No, but once the first nuclear weapon hits in some way, who the fuck knows what's going to happen from there, right? It, it could all be chaos in, in a matter of hours. And so um, I think we have to take the threat seriously which means, how do you get him to not do that? He's got to get some sort of fig leaf of a win in the Ukraine. He gets some sort of territory, something he can point to and say, I won, just like I told you I would. Will everyone think, yeah, 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 we're just appeasing you? Sure, but let him think that. So what that means, though, of course, is you have to say the Ukrainians, who have done an amazing job fighting off the Russians, even though you've done a great job, you're still going to have to give up some of your territory, even though it feels totally unfair, because we don't want the increased risk uh, of a nuclear war. 
And the Ukrainians are going to hate that, right? Um, but at the same time, while they are excellent fighters, uh, perhaps you know honed by their centuries of pogroms, um, they um, still rely on the West for money and for weapons. And the U.S. has sent you know hundreds of billions, I think, at this point over to the Ukraine, as have other Western countries. And I think if we say to them, you know, the spigot's getting turned off, you got to work out a deal. Um, they're going to have to do it. One country, the Ukraine, is totally relying on us. The other one, Russia, is not. And so while I get that it feels like an anathema to sort of cave to Putin in some ways, the reality is I don't care about the sovereignty of the Ukrainians. I don't care whether Donbass is controlled by the Russians or the Ukrainians. I care about not dying in a nuclear war. I care about my kids not dying in a nuclear war. And the notion that we should put ourselves at risk for the sovereignty of any country other than our own, um, simply because we think the, inter the international order is important, or we can't, you know. Well, but it is a question of where it ends, right? If, if Putin, if Putin Let, realizes okay, that this works, does he say, "Oh, I'll just take the Donbas and go okay. home"? No, no. Well, maybe, maybe not, because he, he was significantly embarrassed and humiliated. By the way, not just globally, but within his own country, right? There's been reported attempts on his life. There have been protests. That he hasn't been able to silence. He's got people on the left in Russia attacking, and people on the right in Russia attacking. This is not normal business for. Putin either. So I have to suspect he's, he's learned something of a lesson here. But OK, let's take it, because I, I had this debate with uh, my political consultant friends yesterday over, over our text chain. OK. OK, let's give Putin Poland and the Baltics. Right? Now he's, he's, he says, I got Donbas. I'm going to keep going, right? And the question is, he could either have Poland and the Baltics, or there's a 20% chance that your children die in a nuclear war. You know what? Give them fucking Poland and the Baltics. I don't care. But is it as, I mean, it, it, sure, if you're playing like a, a board game or something, you can do that. But is that how it works in the real world? You know, I mean, when, when, when does, does, does Churchill say, yeah, sure, give Hitler uh, France? I mean, what's the big deal? Well, like, the difference at least it's is not the UK. Well, the difference is, though, look, think about the US. That was our theory in World War II, and we didn't get engaged until Pearl Harbor, right? Which was effectively. This is not our war. Maybe I'm more of an isolationist than, than I realize, but my view is until this becomes our war where our sovereignty is under threat, I'm not willing to take the risk of any sort of nuclear warfare um, to save some other country. And by the way, what's a country? It, it, it's a makeup of the people who lead the country at that moment, which means they're politicians, which means they're the same self-loathing, insecure, desperately kind of ambitious people, um, and I'm going to risk my life, my kids' lives, for the political ambition of the president of Poland? Fuck that. Um, do you know who Thomas Schelling is? Nope. So he was a, an economist. He won the Nobel Prize, and he wrote a book called The Strategy of Conflict that's very, very well regarded, very well known. So I was going to read this. Uh, Michael Kinsley was a student of his, mm -hmm. and he wrote this kind of shorthand of, of Thomas Schelling's Strategy of Conflict. There's a book called The Strategy of Conflict. I think it perfectly encapsulates kind of Putin, but, but, um, but I want to read it and then I want sure. to get you to react to it. So here's, here's, the, here's the scenario. You're standing at the edge of a cliff, chained by the ankle to someone else. You'll be released and one of you will get a large prize as soon as the other gives in. How do you persuade the other guy to give in when the only method at your disposal, threatening to push him off the cliff, will doom you both? Answer, you start dancing closer and closer to the edge. That way you don't have to convince him that you would do something totally irrational, plunge him off, plunge him and yourself off the cliff. You just have to convince him that you are prepared to take a higher risk than he is of accidentally falling off the cliff. If you can do that, you so, win. So here's the distinction. It's the point that you made a minute ago, which is, you know, on paper, game theory, you know, playing risk or whatever it is. Look, 
I do that dance probably more than anyone listening. I was going to say this, right? I live, <laughs> I live this fucking dance, right? And but what is it over? It's over money, right? It's over an election. It's over something in the big scheme of things relatively unimportant. And I think that you have to be able to make distinctions between, you know, showing that you'll go farther than the other person, showing that you're tougher than the other person, kind of using that strategy to win, which I do all the time, um, and incurring the legitimate risk of billions of people dying in a war. And so in this case, if I really felt like I was going over the cliff, let them have the prize. I'll figure out some other way to get the prize. Okay. Hard pivot number two. We're going to end on this one. Uh, Bradley, you wrote a guest column for the Daily News. The, um, the headline is Democrats for 2024, try a little humility. I'm going to quickly summarize your, your point here, and then sure. I want you to add to it. But your basic idea is that everybody's looking ahead to 2024. They've got their sort of intellectual framework for which candidate's going to really have a good shot at it. It could be Gavin Newsom has recently sort of talked about, you know, that he's going to run if Biden doesn't run, all this stuff. And your point is, look, this kind of intellectualizing about candidates is just always wrong, always off. And it's really about this kind of emotional connection that's very hard to see in advance. Yeah. And that we've just got to, like, sit back, let things unfold and not try to game the system with our kind of like sort of intellectual punditry. Is that fair enough? Yeah. Okay. So let's let's just play this one out. OK, okay. so. Sometime in 2023, Biden breaks a hip, right? And it's clear that he's not going to be able to run for re-election. They obviously hide that from us. <laughs> yeah, but, but he, they make up some other reason. Right. The minute he says, I'm not running, no, Kamala Harris would say, oh, well, no one should be challenging me. I'm the sitting vice president. I should have and a everybody path. Would be like, but <laughs> Gavin Newsom already, by the way, the governor from her state has already made it clear that that's not happening, right? <laughs> the minute one person gets in, everyone gets in. So you're looking like you had in 2020 at, you know, two dozen candidates, something like that. Oh, so many and, repeats, and, too. And my God. a lot of repeats, mm-hmm. some new customers. And what will happen immediately is people like us, people, quite frankly, who listen to this podcast, who are tend to be really smart, highly educated, solve problems through ration and rationality and logic as opposed to emotion, We'll start to sort of on paper say, oh, well, Buttigieg, he can win, you know, the left wing because he's gay, but he also is from the Rust Belt, so he could take states like Indiana, and it makes sense. And on paper, here we go. Amy Klobuchar, you know, she is a moderate Democrat. She's tough. She can win over moderate Republicans and independents, but still hold the Democratic Party. She's the way to go, right? Kamala Harris, oh, she's African-American. And at the same time, you know, she she can be more conservative. She needs to be. She certainly was when she was the district attorney of San Francisco. She's the person. And we'll come up with on paper and we'll use selective polling data, fundraising numbers, analysis from pundits and whatever else to not only justify whatever it is that we're thinking and use confirmation bias to, to, to say, yes, I'm right, but then ask our friends for money for this candidate, right? Um, <laughs> Are some people doing that to you? Not yet, Not yet, right. but by the way, I did that before Mike got in the race in 2020 for Buttigieg, and I asked, I raised about $180,000 on a fundraiser for him, and I was wrong, right? Buttigieg was not actually all that competitive. He did really well, he won Iowa, and then after that, he, he floundered out um, because I used my head, and that was the wrong way to go. Elections are typically won uh, instinctively and instinctually and emotionally, not intellectually. The voters figure out who feels right to them from an emotional standpoint, and that's the direction they take. But but just going back to your Buttigieg decision, that's not necessarily a bad decision anyway, right? So you're— I'll tell you, it was a bad decision. It was? Because I talked to him before the fundraiser. He told me how much he loved mobile voting. 
And then after the fundraisers, team totally blew me off and fucked me over. So really? I'll tell you one guy who I will not be supporting in 2024 is Pete Buttigieg. Okay. Wow. Um, but, but still, that impulse, right? So it was wrong in the case of Buttigieg. But like you can sit on the sidelines and wait for it to, to, to happen. Or you can be like, hey, I do like what I know of this person. I have some resources. I have some connections. I can give them a boost that gives them at least a foot in the door, right? Yeah. No? It's okay. So, sort of, right? But, but the reality is in a presidential campaign, not really. Right. So could, could someone like me arguably take a city council candidate and say, I'm going to put my resources behind this person. I'm going to give them a platform. I'm going to raise a bunch of money. And that maybe gives them a slightly better chance of competing. Sure, maybe, right? The, the numbers are so big and so vast. They're like My fundraiser, Buttigieg, it was a good fundraiser. That's a lot of money to produce for half an hour of his time. At the same time, 180 grand doesn't move the needle in the slightest, right? And I understand your point is, well, if there's 500 of those, it starts to add up. Um, but, and, also, but also the people that you were assembling were doing more than giving money. They were, you know, they, they had the potential to have a, a broader influence. May, may, they, I yeah, guess they didn't, but per, perhaps. They yeah, but, but overall, the point is this. It just let's let's take a look at emotion versus logic. And let's look back at the last 20 years because there's so many examples. And we'll stick with the presidentials. Al Gore was clearly the logical candidate to succeed Bill Clinton. He, the country was doing pretty well despite Clinton's personal scandals. Gore was well qualified. He's the first person at a high level to really speak out about, about the environment. Um, but he was a really unlikable guy. And George W. Bush who, you know, is no one's, you know, candidate for Mensa, um, <laughs> at the same time, is a likable guy, right? You know, I've, I've seen Hard that. to remember that, isn't he, it? Even in my own limited interactions with him, I've seen that, right? And so, at the end of the day, the guy that should have won by a lot, Gore, lost. And yeah, Florida, you could say it was stolen from him, whatever. But it should never come to that. Um, because Bush captured people emotionally. They wanted to have a beer with him. And Gore was just this annoying fucking guy that you always Of course, hated. he didn't drink, so they couldn't have a beer with him. But yes, no. your point is correct. Uh, right. So now fast forward again, 2008. Hillary Clinton, by all means, is the cinch for the Democratic nomination. It's her turn. You know, we had eight years of Bush. He was a failure. Iraq failed. Afghanistan failed. He couldn't get anything done. Here comes Hillary, right? And all the people on paper say this is the way to go. And this guy, Barack Obama, comes along, who's really not in any way qualified for the job. He'd been a U.S. senator for a couple of years, was a state senator before that. Certainly didn't have anywhere near the qualifications of Hillary Clinton. But he captured people's hearts. He captured people's emotions. And he was able to raise tremendous amounts of money online. And people voted with their hearts. And even though Hillary should have won that election, she didn't. Then let's just stick with Hillary for a minute. 2016, she's running for president again. This time, there's no Obama. Obama tells Biden he can't run for the nomination. Biden listens. Hillary's got it in the bag. We're going to make sure that she has all of her resources saved up for the general election to take on Rubio or Jeb Bush or whoever we think it's going to be. Sanders almost beats her, right? It's, it's, it's a lot closer than it should have been because, again, now Sanders, I would argue, is a demagogue, but... He captured the hearts and and sort of you know emotions of a lot of primary voters in a way that Hillary couldn't do. Hillary squeaks by and then of course manages to lose to Trump. In the Republican primary that year, 
Everyone's talking Marco Rubio. Everyone's talking Jeb Bush. Some people are talking John Kasich. They all make sense on paper. Trump kicked the living shit out of all of them, right? And, and if you look, and even in 2020, while Joe Biden is not this great kind of emotional person in the way that Bill Clinton or Barack Obama or in his own crazy way Trump is, he won South Carolina at the exact moment, the same week that COVID all of a sudden went from like this sort of oh, what is this thing to like, holy shit, we're all going to die. I remember having dinner with you that week. Yeah, we had dinner that night. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I remember that. Um, it was the last time I went for dinner for like a year. Um, and um, Sanders, who had you know won the previous primaries, who was really way ahead of Biden, just because Biden got some delegates from South Carolina, shouldn't have changed the math all that much. But everyone said, oh, this guy can't actually run anything. We can't put the country, him in charge of the country when we're now facing a global pandemic that can kill us all. We need a steady hand, and that steady hand was Joe Biden, and he won. So the point is, um, people make decisions with their gut, with who feels right to them, and just look throughout history, whether it's Bill Clinton, Ronald Reagan, Teddy Roosevelt. You know, there's so many different people over time that they just resonated personally. Um, JFK is a great example of that. And, and that's who wins elections. So here's what's going to happen. Biden's going to break a hip next year if he does. Then they're going to make up some other reason why he can't run. 20 people are going to jump in. And all of our smart friends who are doctors and lawyers and bankers and they have all, and real estate developers and all of these things where they feel like they're very intelligent and rational people will pick candidates and then they will support those people and they will ask you to support those people and they will give you arguments that sound completely rational and logical all on paper as history shows time and time again, they will be wrong. Well, somebody will be right. Somebody. Yeah, right? yeah. The so, people who ultimately either identify the candidate that will have that emotional appeal and, and, and resonance or... Just lucky. Just lucky, <laughs> yeah. right. Okay, I'm going to ask you one more question, then I want you to preview what, what we're going to do next week. But hold, sure. on, hold on for that for a second. So this is just one quick Trump question. Um, there are all these looming indictments. There have been looming indictments for a long time, but they seem to be a little closer than before. Um, two questions. Yeah. Does it matter? Um, does does getting indicted crush Trump in the um, in the Republican primary? And does it matter what the indictment is for? Is that part of the calculus, or is it all kind of like him against the world, and it, it, it suits his? Sort? No. So look, anyone else? We've said in this podcast a lot of times. Trump unfortunately seems to defy the laws of political gravity. So anything that would take out anyone else's career. Somehow with him seems to have very little impact. I mean, if Reagan was a Teflon president, I don't even know what the better version of Teflon is, but Trump's that. Right, because Teflon right? is kind of outdated. People don't really use Teflon anymore. Yeah, I don't even know what it would be. He's just like the invisible president now or whatever. But like, <laughs> except he's highly visible. Um, so, yeah, I've been thinking about this, obviously, as I'm sure most people have. So the first question is, how much would it matter in a Republican primary if he were indicted? So... Clearly, most of his base will stick with him because they are convinced that he is the manifestation of their hopes and dreams and fears and angers and everything else. And anything that happens to him is just the system conspiring against him, just like the system conspires against them. He'll hold most of them, but he'll lose some of them. And the question is, is there someone else running, DeSantis, Abbott, Nikki Haley, whoever— that can generate enough support from all of the other voters that if they can then pick up 20% of people who were Trump voters, is that enough to get over the top? 
I don't know. Um, you know, the moment, you know, DeSantis is sort of the media darling on the right, but there's always people like that. And to the point we just discussed before, that tends to always be wrong. So until you show me someone who also can get 30% of the Republican primary vote and, and then be in a position to take away some of Trump's support post-indictment and win, I'd still bet on Trump. So then the second question is, does it matter what kind of indictment there is? It's interesting. So the one that should be both the most powerful, but also in some ways um, the best for him would be January 6th, right? Because on one hand, you committed treason, right? You should be fucking hanged for that. Um, and in theory, a lot of people will say, you know, this is a bridge too far. Um, on the other hand, you know, it seems like, as we're seeing to the reaction to the FBI raid of the Mar-a-Lago, that people on the far right are just seeing this as a conspiracy by the liberal Biden Justice Department against Trump. And that's all that it is. So while it ought to be the most damning thing, I don't think it necessarily would be. Um, you've got Georgia and other sort of various election fraud cases. Um, they're kind of like the same thing as January 6th, right? So then you get into sort of financial fraud. Uh, New York State Attorney General Tish James this week or last week um, announced that a— That seemed like pretty weak sauce to me. Yeah. Like—, like why does the New York? Why does the Attorney General need to sue him for misrepresenting stuff to banks? Don't the banks have their own lawyers to go after him if they feel like they have? Would... You learned nothing from co-hosting this podcast. No, with I know, me? I know. Well, I'm teeing you up, but it's just so funny. You're like, wait, banks have way more resources than New York State does in terms of like, yeah, but also going after bank, the... banks don't like controversy, right? So, so they'll just say, oh, okay, they'll eat a lot of shit, yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> But and Tish James is a politician, and she wants attention. And look, whether or not they recover, even if they get a two hundred fifty million dollar judgment against Trump, they're not going to pay it. Um, but if it's some, if the IRS indicted him for tax fraud, while on one hand, don't Americans would, identify with people who get hounded by the IRS? I think they do. But on the other hand, one of Trump's sort of main selling points to the base was, "I am so rich and successful that if you just follow my lead, you will be too." And if it turns out that they can prove that it was all a scam and he's not rich and he's not successful, maybe that actually has a bigger impact. Do you think that's true, though? Isn't he actually rich and somewhat successful? I mean, sure, he has lots of scam businesses and stuff. But like, I mean, I've never understood that like Trump is actually secretly broke. And you're like, well, okay, so take the money he inherited from his dad. Right. And no, less, I, no, I know. If you, if you put it in yeah, an index yeah, fund, you'd have right. like millions Much, more. much more But money. people are not going to go that far. They look at Mar-a-Lago and they think that man lives a life of dreams and that's all they care about. Right? Um, yeah. But if he's seen as Bernie Madoff, then that's not, not necessarily going to be the case. Um, he's not quite Madoff, but he's not quite not Madoff either. So, look, the, to the underlying point is, if he is indicted, will he run? Yeah. In fact, probably even more likely to run. Um, if he is indicted, will that take away enough support in the Republican primary for him to lose the nomination? Yes, if somebody else is able to generate and consolidate enough support themselves, that that extra 10, 15 percent makes a real difference. And then third, assuming that he is the nominee, will it matter in a general election? I like to think yes. I like to think that the assholes that you and I know, and we won't say their names <laughs> on this podcast, who secretly voted for Trump because they don't want their taxes to go up, um, once he is indicted for treason, would back off, right? Um, and I hope that's the case, but I'm not sure. 
Okay, um, I want to tell you about, uh, quickly tell us what we're going to be doing next week, but I want listeners to know that there's a crime scene developing outside our window. Bradley can't actually see it because it's I actually, saw the cop kind of wandering out, but he was like... Right, but now they put up this yellow tape, um, and something must have happened next door. It's and there just, is a re media here, too. Yeah, there's media here, and, and I mean, it can't. it's not urgent, but... Something yeah, happened. there's no sirens. The funny thing is, I saw the cop just kind of walking, and he was doing it like in one of those straight lines, like almost giving himself a sobriety test. I'm like, is he drunk and deciding whether to arrest himself? Like, no, um, no, he was not clearly he that. was not. But uh, but yeah, something's happening. Look, this is part why having a studio uh, on the ground floor with a window is both exciting and risky. You know, Jordan the other day said to me he was a little thrown off in our podcast because some guy not only came to the window but seemed to approach the window kind of violently, and he was like, "Oh fuck." Um, <laughs> We were fine. But nonetheless, it, it kind of cuts in both directions. So next ne week, next what are we doing week? next so week? If the listeners remember, about two months ago now or so, we had an episode where it was a long episode, and I really laid out a list of policy prescriptions that I thought were necessary um, to, to materially change the situation of the world. Um, started wondering a little bit about if, if you saw the elections in Italy, right? And, and mm -hmm. the, the kind of right-wing extremist party won, and we see this happening. In, I'm much in, more concerned with Sweden, as you know. Right. Yes, of course, that's, that's your heritage. But we're seeing this happen all over Europe, of course, and, and Trump here in the U.S., and, and you know Philippines and all kinds of countries around the world. So we know that radical extremism is on the rise. And my question is, what are the structural changes that, not in the next couple of years, but in the next hundred years, that if you made these changes, would significantly eliminate the ability for extremists and demagogues to gain power? And so what I'm going to do next week is lay out what I think those solutions are. Cool. Okay, I look forward to that. And um, just if believe me, if you've gotten to the end of this episode, we know you like the podcast and we urge you to uh, write a review and tell us what you think of it. Cool. Thanks, Hugo. Bye.